my, my privilege this morning to introduce our guest speaker. Uh, so allow me to read Jim Burns' credentials to you and then tell you why I am personally really grateful that he is here with us this weekend. Uh, Jim Burns is the president of Homeward and executive director of the Homeward Center for Youth and Family at Azusa Pacific University. Jim speaks to thousands of people around the world each year. He has over one and a half million resources in print in over 25 languages. Jim's radio broadcast is heard on over 800 stations a day and is heard around the world via podcast at homeward.com. Some of his recent books include Faith Conversations for Families, Teenology, How to Raise Great Teens, Closer, Devotions to Draw Couples Together, Confident Parenting, The Purity Code, and Creating an Intimate Marriage. Jim and his wife Kathy and their three daughters, Christy, Rebecca, and Heidi, live in Southern California. Uh, I don't have time in this brief introduction to really communicate the high level of respect I have for this man. Um, so let me just say it this way. In 1996, I went to Bible college to learn how to be a youth pastor. And back then, when you go to Bible college to study youth ministry, you study books that Jim Burns wrote. Uh, this man has been a God-honoring, helpful presence in the world of student ministries and family and everything associated with that for decades. And that is rare. Lots of people are flash in the pan. There are very few people that are consistent and present and helpful and God-honoring for a long period of time. And so I, it is my great privilege and honor to introduce to you, would you give him a warm welcome, Jim Burns. Thank you. I would love to know the guy he's talking about. My daughter, Rebecca, who's actually here with me one day, was driving in the car. She was about 17, and she said, Dad, all of my friends think you are the coolest dad. Well, my head starts to get as big as possible. I mean, I'm so impressed with myself. Lindsay likes this, and you know, going, she just goes on and on. I make the big mistake. Becca, do you think I'm cool? No. You, know, you won't let me do this. You won't let me do that. So anyway, at home, uh, those accolades always don't happen. We're going to talk about home today, and we're going to talk about family and whenever we do that, there are some people who might say, well, you know, I don't have a family yet. I'm, I'm a single. I'm a, a student. Uh, I'm grandparents. I already did that. Been there, done that. But the fact is, is we all have families. My family was what we called a dysfunctional family. I came from a family where there was alcoholism. Dad was an alcoholic. Uh, 20 years before he died, he became a recovering alcoholic, which is a great story. But I grew up in an alcoholic home. Two brothers who were alcoholics. Uh, grandfather on the other side who died of uh, cirrhosis of the liver. And so that was kind of my story. I wasn't raised in the church. I became a Christian when I was 16. One of the reasons why I love uh, student ministry so much and appreciate and respect people like Eric is because there was an Eric in my life who, who brought me to Christ. Um, went to college. The first day at Azusa Pacific University, I was sitting in the nerd section back where some of you are. You know who you are. Yeah, you know it. You just raised your hand. There was a beautiful woman in the second row, and I said, see that girl down there? I'm going to take her out on a date. And they looked at her beauty, and they looked at me, and they laughed. You didn't have to say that so fast, but yeah, you're right. They laughed. And uh, well, one week after college graduation, we were married, okay? And we've been married for 38 years. Now... She also came from a classic dysfunctional family. My family had alcoholism. Her family was just plain weird, okay? <laughs> so we get married, and we think because we're Christ followers, it's going to be easy, and it was not. Our first year of marriage was tough. In fact, I was a youth pastor at a church in Southern California where I live, and we would argue on the way to youth group. 
And then I would get up in front of those kids and talk about the joy of a Christian family. You know, kind of feeling a little hypocritical there, okay? But a year into the marriage, we hit some crises, and we put a stake in the ground and said, we are going to be the transitional generation. We made that word up, transitional generation. You know, the Bible says that you inherit the sins of a previous generation to the third and fourth, and that was definitely our sin bent, if you would. And we were communicating like that, and we were acting like that in many ways without the alcoholism or without some of the classic weird stuff, but we were still not gelling. And we made a decision one year into our marriage that we would either recover or repeat the sins of a previous generation. And for some of you, you may have my background, you may not, but the truth is is that we can recover. And Kathy and I have spent our last, well, 38 years trying to recover. Not that our family was horrible, but just simply that we felt that we could make a difference for the lives of our own children. Now, our daughter Christy, who's our oldest, we have three three girls in our family, all, all women. No hormones or drama in our life, of course. And she's about 17, and she's having a conversation with her mom, and she's doing all the conversing. You might want to call it an argument, but Kathy's not saying anything. And Christy's escalating and escalating. I'm being the passive-aggressive father, husband. I'm in the other room listening. And there's even things that she was saying to Kathy, and I'd go, boy, that's true about my wife, but I would never say it to her like that, Christy. (laughs) Finally, she escalated. I did what I should have done before. I jumped in, and I said, Christy, you go to your room. She turned on me. Now it's personal because she turned on me, dad. And so I just said, go to your room. She slammed the kitchen door. We have a sign that says, bless this house. It went crooked. (laughs) And I followed her upstairs. And she kept wanting to talk. And I said, Christy, no, it's my turn now. I want you to be quiet. I said, Christy, I want to talk about your mom. First of all, some of the things you said about mom, they're true. Well, she's 17, so she's going, cool, dad's on my side. I said, however, I never want you to talk to my wife like that again. And I'm not sure that Christy had ever figured that out, that that was my wife, it was mom to her. And I said, but but other thing I want to talk about. Your mom is the person in my life who has grown the most. I said, honestly, your mom started in deficit land. I said, we don't talk much about the family dysfunction, but you, at 17, kind of understand where she came from. But you only understand half of it. So Christy, you need to understand that mom started in deficit land, and mom has grown to here. And I've never seen another person grow like mom does and, and continues, my wife. And I said, Christy, we've never talked to you about this, but mom and I came up with something long before you were born called the transitional generation, and we believe that we have inherited the sins of previous generations, or at least the sin bent, the habits, the, the, the way of living. It's partly hereditary. It's partly just by living in that, those families. And we've set out to try to recover and not repeat. And I said, and the, and the burden is on your mom, and the burden's on me. And I'm telling you right now, it's not been easy. But it's been a privilege to try to recover so that you, Christy, if mom has gone to here to here, that you can start someplace in the middle and you can move farther than mom or dad ever has. And at that point, her eyes started to well up with tears because she understood. And she even said, Daddy, I'm I'm sorry, you're right. And what I want to say to some of you as we talk about family, because it's not easy. There's pain in families at times. What I want to say to some of you is that there is incredible hope and that no matter if you're a mom and a dad, you're right going through what we're going to talk about, but if you're a grandma and a grandpa, if you're an aunt, uncle, a student, we all have family. I'm flying from here to do a funeral. The funeral's tomorrow, and my father, who had been married to my mom for 53 years, um, watched my mom die. And then she, he married my mom's best friend, who had also lost her husband. It's a great story. 14 years they were married, and she died 
this week, and the funeral's in Kansas City, and our whole family is convening there to be a part of it. She's like a second mom to me. But I remember the last time I saw her, it wasn't that she could speak a whole lot. She's 91 years old. It wasn't that long ago, actually. I flew into Kansas City just to be with her. And as I did that, I, I, I thought it was interesting for me because I went, she gave me strength just by being in that bed, and I hope I gave her strength. Her daughter, who's a, like a sister to me now, said, you know, that happened. That's family, and it happens, and there's pain sometimes. But Jesus gives us an amazing illustration of family. And you know what? It's not one of these things that are way up here. It's actually pretty lower shelf, and it's pretty practical when it comes to how we do family. And I want to read this scripture to you today. It's found in the book of Mark. First, we're going to start at chapter 10, and then we're going to move backwards to chapter 9. But it's not just what Jesus said. It's incredible what he said. In fact, it's somewhat radical. But it's also amazing what he did. And so let's look at this in Mark chapter 10, and let's take some practical Uh, material from this for our own families. At verse 13, it says, people were bringing little children to Jesus to have him touch them. Now, let me stop right here. People were bringing little children, so parents were bringing children to Jesus to touch them. But here's what happened. The disciples rebuked them. Strong word. So a lot of times, you know you see the picture sometimes, have you ever seen it, where there's a picture of Jesus and there's a lamb kind of around his neck and there's children and it's in a pastoral part and, you know, it looks so, so happy. Well, in this particular one, they take that from that, this particular story, but it wasn't happy. The disciples rebuked, not the children and, and, and not Jesus, but rebuked the parents for bothering Jesus because in that day, why would we want children to bother the rabbi? He was too important. It didn't happen 2,000 years ago. A lot of children weren't allowed into the presence of a rabbi, of a teacher, and the reason was because they were too important. In fact, 2,000 years ago, interestingly enough, many rabbis treated women and children on the same level as dogs, but not Jesus. You see this in the next scripture. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. In the Greek, the New Testament's written in Greek, indignant. He was angry. He was hacked. So again, we have tension here over children. And it says he was, he, he, he was angry. And he said to them, you let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. So in other words, in anger, he said, no, let the little children come to me right now. Do not hinder them. And then listen to what he said. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Whoa, it's an incredible statement. One day I'll let Jim, Eric, some of the others unpack that statement because it's an amazing statement. He went on to say, an amazing truth. I tell you the truth. Anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And then there's a throwaway verse that I'm going to talk about. And a throwaway verse, sometimes in in people who study the Bible will call this a throwaway verse because we usually don't teach on this. This is an amazing scripture. I'm going to put some time into it in a moment. It says, and then Jesus took the children in his arms and he put his hands on them and he blessed them. You know, a lot of times we don't think of that time where we shake hands, saw some hugs, as a form of blessing. If I've gotten to know Eric, like, I want to hug this guy, not in a weird way. I just want to hug. I mean, I, it's a blessing. He's an amazing person. You're very fortunate to have somebody in student ministries at this church like him. And, and so when we shook hands and we kind of held each other's hand and grabbed it, that's a form of blessing. And Jesus blessed children And he actually gave them affection. We're going to talk about that because there's a lot of people who crave affection that don't get it, and so they make unwise decisions. Now, if you look at chapter 9, we're going to go backwards. Perhaps it's the same parents. Perhaps it's the same children. Jesus said something that was absolutely remarkable, amazing, and in many ways, people could have looked at this as absolutely blasphemous. It's Jesus speaking. 
But some of the people who heard it might not have thought it was all that special. In fact, they might have been angry. It says, he took a little child and had, this is verse 36 in chapter 9. He took a little child and had the child stand among them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, the parents, the disciples, other children perhaps, whoever welcomes one of these little ones in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me does not just welcome me, but the one who sent me. So in other words, Jesus said to these people, when you welcome a child, you welcome me. Wow. Now, I'm not sure they understood that in terms of even the context, because you didn't hear that being said 2,000 years ago. You don't hear it being said much now. But he said, not just me, but the one who sent me. So in other words, when you welcome a child, you welcome God. That was what was blasphemous to some of these people. Now, probably not the disciples, because they probably understood the heart of, of God. You know, there's parents in here. Maybe some soccer moms, hockey moms, some soccer dads, hockey dads, who might say, you know, I'm just a soccer mom, or I'm just this or that. No, when you welcome a child, you welcome Jesus. So all of us in our family situation, when you welcome a child, you welcome Jesus. Now, some of you who have teenagers might want to change your Jesus for somebody else's Jesus for a few days. <laughs> but listen to this one, and this is something we hardly ever talk about in church, too, because it makes Jesus look angry, but at verse 42, he makes an amazing statement, but it's his teaching in here that helps us understand his heart. He said, and if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a large millstone tied around their neck. How does he feel about people who hurt children? Say, woman said to me once, I was in Guatemala, and she was radiant. She was like a Mother Teresa of Guatemala. She went from village to village sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with children up in the hills where there's drug cartels, and she helped unwed mothers who I deeply care for too, and so I was very drawn to her. And I found out that her 12-year-old son had died, and so I went up to her in the most broken Spanish known to humankind. Radiant woman, 4 foot 11, 4 foot 11, radiant and I said, lo siento, I'm sorry. And then I said, again in broken Spanish, how do, you, how do you manage to be so radiant in the midst of your grief? Her son had died three months before. And she looked at me with tears in her eyes and she said, porque niños son más cerca al corazón de Dios, because children are closest to the heart of God. And that's how she could still remain radiant. You know, very close to the heart of God is your family. There will be people in this place that are deeply heartbroken because they have adult children who have strayed. There are people who are confused because of marriages or because of a broken marriage. There are people who are students who aren't really, you know, saying that your parents are the greatest parents on earth. And there is pain in families. But what we can learn from Jesus in this real brief experience is pretty remarkable. And let me say this about family. It doesn't just happen. Parents can't do a good job, grandparents can't do a good job when it comes to parenting if they just do it by circumstance and chance. They have to be proactive, intentional. And there's pain. I'll just admit to you. I wish, you know, the speaker comes from California can say an easy thing about marriage and parenting and life, but it's not. It's, it's complicated. I mean, in my life, you know, a sinner married another sinner, and then we had sinnerlings, and we sort of mess up. So there's pain. But let me say it this way. There is either the pain of discipline or the pain of regret. Now, when I stood up here, you probably didn't say after Eric introduced me, that guy's in an amazing shape. But I want you to know, I worked out today. And I worked out two days ago. And so actually, I'm kind of sore right here. That's the pain of discipline. This is the pain of regret right here. 
But what I'm trying to say here is sometimes we have to be disciplined about the way we do family. Jesus is going to show us how to do that in a neat way. Three quick points. Number one is we bless children with our presence. It's the power of being there. In fact, children regard your very presence as a sign of caring and connectedness. Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. Parents, if you think that you know, going to the soccer games and playing the taxi mom or the taxi dad or you know, spending time with your kids, grandparents, you know, if you've all of a sudden gotten online or now you're texting your you know, teenagers or whatever it might be, I got news for you. That's a big deal because presence matters. It's the power of being there. I mentioned that my mom had died. My mom, probably the greatest influence in my life besides now my wife, Kathy, and my mom uh, went into hospice. And it's been a number of years ago now, but I remember as if it was yesterday, and I I would drive to her house. I live in a place called Dana Point, California, which is a beach town in Southern California. They live in a beach town called Seal Beach. It's about 45 minutes, and I would get there most every day. Just It was power of being there, presence. So I'd sit on the bed. Mom is in hospice. I'm sitting on mom and dad's bed. Dad was always watching a baseball game because that's kind of what the family does. Four sons, and uh, all of us played baseball. And uh, my mom's just sitting there. I'm kind of looking at the clock going, what time is it? It's kind of ready to get going. And all of a sudden, she looks up at me as clear as could be, and she had not been clear for days. And she said, Jimmy, where's your dad? Almost concerned and agitated. And I, I went, well, he's in the other room watching a baseball game, mom. Do you need him? No. She kind of goes back to sleep. About 45 seconds later, again, almost agitated, Jimmy, where's your dad? I said, well, he's, he's watching a baseball game. Mom, do, can I get him? She goes, no. She looked at me and she says, you know, I, I never liked baseball. Mom, you never liked baseball. Did you ever miss a little league game of mine? I don't think so, Jim. Did you ever miss a pony league game or a middle school, high school? Mom, you went to millions of games. All of us played baseball. My brother Bill played for the Chicago White Sox. You've heard of that team? My brother Bill played for them. He, when he was in minor leagues, she bought a shortwave radio so she could hear his name in Sarasota, Florida, and other places where he was playing. And, and I said, what do you mean you don't like baseball? She said, well, Jim, I, I didn't go there to watch baseball. I went there to be with you. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I mean, Jim, the adult, gets in the car and bawls like a baby as he's leaving, knowing that my mother is going to go, but also knowing that her influence was the power of being there. It was her presence. Jesus said, let the little children come. At all times, I had access to my mom. That's a big deal. Don't underestimate the power of being there. But also be affirmed. Sometimes the guy comes in from afar and speaks on parenting issues or family issues, and we totally walk out feeling guilty. I'm saying, you're doing a good job. It is going to work. At the same time, You know, your kids aren't going to be walking up to you, especially if they're teenagers, and saying, you know, thanks so much for all you're doing for me. I mean, that doesn't sort of happen that way. But I tell you right now in a place where I'm thinking about my second mom, who I'm going to help bury tomorrow, and who, uh, and, and my dad who's gone, and my mom now, you know, I'm thinking about their presence. So it's the power of being there. Jesus didn't just say it, Jesus showed us that that's how you do it. So be affirmed. It's going to make a difference. Nobody said it was going to be easy. It's the pain of discipline or the pain of regret. And sometimes presence, we we have to do the pain of discipline, of being there. Just being there present for them. When they're not thankful. Or when they're little kids and you're, you know, changing diapers and doing all that stuff. I mean, there's a neat part to it, but there's also just a, a grueling part to it. It's hard. Students, you don't get away with this. It's the power of being there. Your presence makes a difference to your parents. Big time. 
to your grandparents, say. Jesus then, I'm skipping a few verses, they're amazing verses, but at verse 16, I called this a throwaway verse, and that might have offended some of you, and I don't mean it's a throwaway verse, the scripture is the word of God, but this particular scripture said they, that really Jesus placed his hand on a child and he blessed them. We bless children with affection, we bless families with affection. Now I'm talking about appropriate affection, obviously. I drove by the other day, the school right here. And uh, there are several schools, I'm sure, but I drove by a really big high school, and I thought to myself, I wonder how many of those kids are sexually promiscuous, not because they crave sex, but because they crave affection, and they're not getting it from home. In fact, a recent study out of UCLA says it takes eight to ten meaningful touches a day for someone to, to thrive. And I'm convinced that there are kids, because that's my focus. When I wake up in the morning, I'm thinking about kids, and how can I help kids? And the most effective way for me to do that is come alongside adults now. But how can I help them by helping parents and grandparents and loved ones give them affection? And affection just isn't touch. It's an I love you here and there. I didn't get that from home. It doesn't mean that my parents were horrible or abusive. They just didn't know how to do that. And if you come from a home where your background wasn't that you received a lot of affection, and you're not giving your kids affection, then I'm saying three words, get over it. Because if you don't give your kids affection, appropriate affection, you won't build security and honor in their life. And they'll have to look for false affection someplace else. In fact, there's adults here and also, you know, at the other sites who would say one of the reasons why I went in a bad direction as a young person, or maybe even as an older person, was because I didn't get that appropriate affection. I'm not laying that all on our parents. I'm just simply saying that it's important for us to, to offer them affection. My dad did that. He gave me noogies. That's why I'm bald-headed. Okay? A 13-year-old, you're not going to go up and say, give me a hug and a kiss, honey. I mean, that just sort of doesn't happen. But what are ways we can give them affection? I get a call from a mom who was very concerned about her daughter. She was caught in the act um, in her parents' bedroom during school with a boy. And the mom came back from work and, you know, caught her. And so she thought I could fix him. I've written several books in the area of sexuality, and so, you know, they think I'm like, you know, the sex expert or something. That's scary. My wife just laughs whenever anybody ever says that. So this girl comes in with her mom and her dad. I don't have a big couch, but mom and dad are on this side of the couch. Big gap, and then this girl who's not looking at me. And the dad proceeds to tell me the story I'd already heard, and he gets angry and calls her a bad name, and there's a tear running down her eye, and it's not working well in my office. So I said, hey, how about going out and talking to my assistant, Cindy, and maybe she can get you, you know, something to drink. I'd like to talk to your daughter by her, herself. Well, at this point, having three daughters, I read the girl right. She rolled her eyes like, you know, the bald-headed guy is going to you now yell at me just like my dad did. Well, I did this because I couldn't get her attention. She wasn't looking at me, so I went. Finally, she looked up, and I said, that was rough. And she said, well, it's kind of true. I didn't expect her to say that. She said, it's true because I kind of do that stuff and I've kind of done more that they don't know about. She was so honest. I love that with students. She said, I used to be close to my dad. Now, I didn't ask her what her relationship was like with her dad, but she said, I used to be close with my dad. He's the one who taught me how to play tennis. She was an all-state California tennis player, an amazing tennis player, I find out. And he had taught her. And I was so close. I mean, he would be the one who would put me on his lap and he'd read books to me and we'd wrestle. And then we'd do this little horsey ride thing. And she goes, this is the way the horseys ride. Trot, trot, trot. And literally, we started busting up laughing. You know, and all of a sudden, we were like now friends because she was looking nerdy and I was laughing at her and she told me about her dad. But then she got serious and she said, Jim, didn't even know she knew my name. Jim, 
what was the coolest thing when I was little was I would come running up to my dad when he'd come home from work and I'd lift him up in the air or he'd lift me up in the air. Um, and he'd say, how's my little princess? And when she said the word princess, her lip began to quiver. And it was like he put her down and I guess I'm not his, his princess anymore because you know, of all the stuff I do. She was heartbroken. Well, I pretty much had heard enough. We talked for a little bit more. And then I brought the parents back in, and I said to the dad, how's your relationship with your daughter? And he said, well, you know, Jim, we used to be close. It was the only time he'd been tender. He was just angry. And a nice guy said, you know, I'm the one who taught her how to play tennis and kind of looked over at her, as if I hadn't known that now. You know, I'm the one who, I loved reading books to her, and we'd wrestle, and we'd play all the time. He said, I used to do this little horsey thing, as if we hadn't just heard this. And he goes, this is the way the horsey's right, and kind of did this. Well, now we're laughing at him like crazy. And he's thinking it's kind of cool, so he goes through the whole rhyme, you know. <laughs> then he got serious. He put his hand on his wife's hand, not on her hand, and he said, but you know the coolest thing, Jim, was that I would come home from work and my daughter would come running up to me, sometimes from behind a couch or whatever, and I'd just lift her up and I'd say, how's my little princess? And when he said the word princess, his lip was quivering. I think we had hereditary lip quivering going on. <laughs> and he said, and then she sort of copped an attitude and it was, again, it was as if he put her down. And... I guess we're not as close anymore. He kind of looked over at her. And I looked at that man as I would look at any of you, and I said to him, my friend, if you don't hug your daughter with an appropriate hug and shower her with affection, there are hundreds of boys, and I looked at her, she was gorgeous, there are no thousands of boys who would love to give her inappropriate affection and more. Now, I'm not laying that all on the dad, but I'm just saying that a home where there is the power of being there and a home where we practice affection is critical. Actually, relationships, affection, warmth, and encouragement. If you set the tone of warmth in your home, it's hard because we respond to what's going on. We react. It's like we're a thermometer and we stick that thermometer in our mouth and it reacts to the fever. But if you set the thermostat to a better place, then kids will thrive. Families will thrive. Families and marriages don't do well in chaos. And yet for many of us, we're so busy, or whatever other reason, that we just create chaos. Lots of emotional chaos. See. Encouragement. You know, many of us were raised on shame-based parenting. So when we get in the trouble, we go right to shame. Shame doesn't work. It works for a moment. You can scream and hit, but that's not going to work. So affection does, warmth does, encouragement does. That's a plan for parenting. What I said was, we can't parent by circumstance and chance because if we parent by circumstance and chance, we're going to get tired, we're going to get drained, we're going to get angry, and we're going to blow it. I have. And yet when we take a step back, it's more the pain of discipline than the pain of regret when it comes to family. Nobody said it was going to be easy. I wish I could stand up here and say that your circumstances may change in your family or your circumstances may change in life. I can't. But your attitude can change, and that's going to make the difference in your life and in your families. Also an incredible statement. It's found in Mark 9. Jesus took that child and said, when you welcome a child, you welcome me, but not just me, but the one who sent me. And so you bless children by your presence, you bless them with affection, and then also you bless them by placing spiritual deposits into their life. You know what's interesting is? For most of us, we go to a great church like that because you have an incredible children's ministry here. You have an incredible youth ministry. My goodness. 
And so what we say is because it's the professionals, we'll let them do it. They're much cooler than we are as parents. I get that, but it's not what we're to do. Actually, our job as parents and grandparents is to actually place the spiritual deposits. It's the job of the church to come alongside us. The most often quoted scripture in the Bible most of us wouldn't know it. We would say John 3.16, maybe Psalm 23, but it's found in Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. It's called the Shema. It's called listen. Shema means listen. And it's the plan and the purpose of the Hebrew people, and it says there is one God, and we are to love that God with our, all of our heart, mind, body, and soul. But then it says a most remarkable thing. It says to the families, it says that we are to live it, and then we impress it on our children. One of the things that we're learning at Homeward, I work at an organization called Homeward, And one of the things we're learning is, and this grieves us, is that about 65% of children and kids leave the church by the time they're 18, and they don't come back. So kids graduate from high school here at a great place like this, and then they don't come back. What's up with that? Well, now there's a study out by George Barna and another guy named Richard Ross do two separate studies. They come up with the same factor, that there is a 300% better chance of kids staying in the church if there are faith conversations in the home. So when Jesus says, when you welcome a child, you welcome me and the one who sent me, it means we are the ones who place spiritual deposits in the life of our children. And again, you don't have to know Greek and Hebrew. That may hurt you. But how do we have conversations? That particular scripture, and I'm not going through that scripture. That's another day, another time. But in that particular scripture, it then even tells you how to bring the presence of God into your home. It's when you wake up, when you go to bed. When they say walk along the road, maybe that's what we're driving our SUV with the kids in the back. But what we do is we bring the presence of God into our home, naturally with conversations. See? And I know that I cannot be a person who's going to place spiritual deposits in the life of my children if I'm running my life at too fast of a pace. I think one of the biggest problems in America with this whole placing spiritual deposits in the life of our children is that we, we run too fast. When I graduated from Princeton many, many years ago in grad school, a friend of mine sent me a note because I didn't stay. I came to go work in the church, so I drove across the country back to California in the time that they would have had the graduation. He wrote me a note the next week, and he said, Dear Jim, we missed you at graduation. If the devil can't make you bad, he'll make you busy. Love, David. Now, David is a major pastor in North Carolina now, and I was speaking at a national pastor's conference, and uh, David was there, and we went out for Mexican food. And we're talking, he's talking about how crazy his life is and how busy he is and, you know, how there's some, you know, brokenness in certain areas of his life and whatnot. Really open, honest, great, uh, uh, you know, admission, great guy. And I said, hey, David, do you remember one time you sent me a note that said, if the devil can't make you bad, he'll make you busy. He goes, wow, that's good. I need to write that down. (laughs) I'm not going to be in the arm of another woman. I'm just going to be so busy, I'm going to miss the most important things. And sometimes what we have to do is say no to good things so we can say yes to the most important things. I was speaking at the pastor's conference for Promise Keepers. The last one they had, it was at Diamondback Stadium. There was a man named Jack Hayford there. And Jack Hayford is an international Christian leader. And I leaned over to Jack. He was the pastor of ceremonies, pastor of ceremonies. So he was doing the MC stuff. He was going to introduce me after the worship. And I said, Jack, what's the secret to leadership success? I always ask old guys, now I'm one, but I always ask old guys that question. And he said, Jim, it's not what I've chosen to do. He said, it's what I've chosen not to do. He said, I need to put my relationship with God first, my relationship with my marriage second, my relationship with my kids third, not a child-focused marriage, but a God first, marriage second, kids, and then my vocation. He said, that's probably the secret to me having this longevity. I went, wow. He was just talking about priorities, see? 
It was that great theologian, or at least I think he was a great theologian, Vince Lombardi of the Green Bay Packers. He said, fatigue makes cowards of us all. And for too many of us in our families, we're running our life at such a fast pace that we're fatigued. And I know that I'm fat- I, when I'm fatigued, I'm a lousy husband, I'm a lousy father, lousy everything. And yet we just keep going. Sometimes what takes place is that, and I'll pick on moms, but it could be dads, and I'll think about teenagers, although it, this, as you can see, this is for any age. But sometimes moms are so involved emotionally with their kids' life. I wrote a book called Teenology, and in that book, I say to the moms, I go, look it, if you really want to help your kids move from dependence to independence, then you get as emotionally and spiritually healthy as you can because you're in for a ride. And so if you're putting all of your energy just into your kids, then you're not going to make it, and you need to have that kind of time. And sometimes we live our lives at too fast of a pace. And I also know that I cannot be the kind of spiritual dad to my kids to help them move along if I'm not taking care of my own soul. You see, some people would say that you might have to spend, what, 50% of your time in in, in your own self-leadership. One of my mentors is a guy named Gary Smalley who writes on marriage and parenting, and he calls it self-care. And as Christians, we sometimes are afraid to use the word self-care because that sounds selfish. What I'm saying is is if we don't take care of our own soul, we're not going to be of any benefit to anybody else. If we want to place spiritual deposits in the life of our family, then we've got to make sure that we're taking care of our own soul, nurturing our own soul. Connect groups are a big deal. I'm in a group every Tuesday morning. I've been in it for years and years and years. And the reason I'm in that group is because I will be a better Christ follower, a better husband, and a better father because I have these men in my life that I can share with. So I get a call, Jim, can you, you know, come and speak in Honolulu, Hawaii to 8,000 students? I wrote a book called The Purity Code. It's a book for kids. It's a book to help kids make sexual purity decisions. And there's a phrase that says, in honor of God, my family, and my future spouse, I commit to sexual purity. And you do it by honoring all scripture, honoring God with your body, renewing your mind for good, Uh, turning your eyes from worthless things, Psalm 119 in the Living Version, and also guarding your heart. And I talk to kids about how do you learn to guard your heart. The Bible says in Proverbs 4, guard your heart above all else for for it determines the course of your life. Okay, And so they wanted me to speak to these kids. And I said, where? And she said, Honolulu, Hawaii. I said, let me pray about that. Yeah, I can go. (laughs) So I speak at this event, and there's literally 8,000 kids in it. There's a band, there's Miss Hawaii who has a sexual abstinence message that's incredible, and then me. So you kind of had Beauty and the Beast going here (laughs) on these kids, and I end up offering these kids a chance to come down and sign a card. It's not the best way to do it. It's better to do it with family, but, you know, this is second best. Some of their families weren't going to have the conversation, so I took the place of dad and mom. Well, these kids come forward. I'm amazed. If you've never seen this, people like Eric have seen this all the time, but it's a pretty remarkable thing. So I go down the stage over to the left, my left, because there's a a woman there who's just bawling her eyes out. And actually, people like Eric and Jim and others would know the name of this person. And they go, well, what happened to that Christian leader? Well, the Christian leader had an adulterous affair and just went off the map. One of the major Christian leaders. She was there, not him. And she was going to speak at an event that I was at the next day. And so I know them. And I'd kind of been a little bit involved in some of the trauma in their life. And so I walked over to her. She's bawling. And I just said, are you okay? And, you know, people were taking care of the kids. 
And she goes, oh, Jim, you probably think I'm crying because of my experience. I'm actually crying because these kids are making such good decisions. Plus, I really had kind of a conversation with God while you were talking. And I think he wants me to tell you something. Well, that scares the bejeebies out of me. You know, when somebody comes up and says, I have a word from God for you, I'm like, is my zipper down? I mean, what is the problem? I said, lay it on me. And she said, I think I'm supposed to say to you, untended fires soon become nothing but a pile of ashes. I said, throw it by me again. The band's playing. There's kids all around. She said, untended fires soon become nothing but a pile of ashes. And I went, boy, that's for me. Because if I don't tend the fire within my own soul, I will be of no benefit to you, but I'll be of no benefit to my wife or kids. What I want to do is release you today to be men and women. If you want the kind of family that your heart desires, then we have to make sure that we take care of our own soul. And we don't have to do it alone. In the Old Testament and the New Testament, our God says to us, I will never leave you or forsake you. And some of us in family situations sometimes feel forsaken. But you don't have to feel that way. 1989, there was an earthquake in Soviet Armenia. It was then called Soviet Armenia. Now Armenia. 40,000 people died. You know, we measure tragedies. It's not as big as other tragedies, but that's pretty big. In fact, I am told that in that country, everybody knew at least somebody that they knew who cared for it who had died. A family feels the rumble. They're in the house. They run out of the house. The reason they did that is because they wanted to go into the street because they knew their house would fall, and they, the house did fall. And so the mom and the dad gathered the children, three children, around them, and they watched their house go down, and they watched other houses go down. It was a really tragic earthquake. As soon as the rumbling was over, the mom and the dad looked at each other, and they both shouted at the same time, Armin. Armin, their son, was in school a couple of blocks away. The dad remembered as he was sprinting to the school, as any of you would do to get their son, the dad remembered that he had said to his son, no matter what happens, I'll always be there for you. I've said that to my children, and I would. So they come running to the school, and there they see devastation. The school is flat. They see some kids from one side of the school running to their home because when you're in trouble, you run home. The importance of family. But on the side where Armin's classroom was, it was silent, and it was deathly, and it was flat. And so the dad went over and started to pull uh, wood and debris, and he did it for four hours. And the police and the fire came and said, you know, you're da- this is dangerous, you're going to have to leave. And he said, I can't do it. I said to my son, no matter what happens, I'll always be there for him. And so then he, he just kept pulling. At eight hours, his wife came and said, honey, we need to talk. <laughs> honey, we need to go home and rebuild our house and be with our children and grieve the death of Armin. And he said, no, I told Armin, no matter what happens, I'll always be there. 12 hours, 16 hours, documented, 28 hours. He hears a little rumble. Armin, is that you? And he hears his son in a weak voice, Dad, it's me. And there's seven of us in this pocket. And I said to them that if you were alive from this earthquake, you'd come and save us because you always said to me, no matter what happens, I'll always be there for you. And Armin was saved. What I want to say to you men and women is that that's how God feels about you, his children, and the children that he allows you to take care of. He says, I'll never leave you or forsake you. He didn't say it was going to be easy. He didn't say every circumstance is easy. He never made a promise of that. But he did say, I will be with you. And then he even taught us in this scripture, bless children with your presence. Bless your family with your presence. If you're a student still, bless them with your presence. 
and with affection. I mean, this isn't hard stuff. It's not easy either. But it's either going to be the pain of discipline or the pain of regret. Be intentional and make sure that you don't miss placing spiritual deposits into their life. But don't do it alone. Do it with God's help. Almighty God, thank you for our families. Some of us haven't thanked you for our families for a long time. Others thank you for them all the time. But we're reminded that we're not in this alone. In fact, so much so, even as we approach the communion moment, that we are so aware that you hung on a cross, yes, like a piece of meat, and sacrificed your body and shed your blood so that we might have life eternal and life abundant. And Lord, in your sacrifice, we call upon you, and first we ask that we would be once again celebrating your death and your resurrection, which gives us eternal life. It gives us forgiveness. But Lord, even in this moment, as we get right with you once again through communion, may we also get right with our families. Desperately, we want a right relationship with you. We want a right relationship with our families. We know the way. It's sometimes easier to go the other way, but then that's the pain of regret. So God, help us to be intentional. Help us to walk out of here celebrating your love and our family. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.